You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. Today's entire episode will be an interview with Chris Mills. Let me tell you about Chris. He's originally from Ontario, but he's lived most of his life in Nova Scotia. Chris built his first lighthouse when he was six years old and landed his first three-week job as a relief assistant on Cross Island near Lunenburg, Nova Scotia at the age of 24. Between 1989 and 1997, Chris worked as a lightkeeper at 11 different light stations in three provinces on both the east and west coasts of Canada. Chris was a founding member of the Nova Scotia Lighthouse Preservation Society. For years, he has recorded the oral histories of lightkeepers and their families. Chris has authored two books, Vanishing Lights and Lighthouse Legacies, Stories of Nova Scotia's Lightkeeping Families. Chris lives in Ketch Harbor, Nova Scotia. He works for the Canadian Coast Guard as a deckhand on a lifeboat. He's also had a career as a radio DJ and news announcer, and he's also a carpenter. I've known Chris for about 20 years, and I recently had a chance to sit down and talk with him in Bar Harbor, Maine, before the annual Grand Slam Lighthouse Cruise that he and I co-narrate, along with our mutual friend, Bob Trapani, in late July. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am here with my friend Chris Mills at the famous Days in Recording Studios in Bar Harbor, <laughs> Maine. Uh, Chris, uh, we first met, I would say, about 20 years ago. I think it was actually at a lighthouse conference in... Uh, in White Point, Nova Scotia. Very two, good. 2000, very good. the International Lighthouse Conference. I was actually out on Seal Island where I was a lightkeeper in Nova Scotia um, three days ago, and I still have two of the mugs from that conference <laughs> in 2000. Yeah, yeah, hard to believe. It's, uh, well, 19, 19 years ago. It's amazing. 19 years, yes, indeed. So it's a pleasure to be with you here tonight. And Thank uh, you. We might hear a little traffic noise out here tonight. The famous Days Inn recording studios are very close to uh, to the main road. Here. Famously they, poor insulation, sound uh, yes, insulation. exactly. Yeah. But again, I really appreciate you being with me here tonight. It's a real pleasure. And uh, I have admired your work for so long. It's great to get to talk to talk with you tonight. So thank you very much, thank Jeremy. You. I thank really, you. I really have. It's an honor. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you. So, uh, Chris, first of all, I understand you built your first lighthouse when you were six years old. Uh, what was that all about? Lighthouse in name, perhaps not in a resemblance, but we had a summer cottage and still do, in fact, on Briar Island at the end of Digby Neck, which sticks out into the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia, in southwest Nova Scotia. And uh, we got to know the lighthouse keeper at Western Light or Briar Island Light, which is officially known as. And uh, I was fascinated with the lighthouse, fa- fearfully fascinated with the foghorn, which was a diaphone, which was an extremely loud and deep uh, sonorous thing that uh, really scared the, the crap out of me. But I was so fascinated with the light, the sweep of the beam, and with the light keeper, I decided to pay homage to that by building a lighthouse out of pieces of basically driftwood, lobster traps, and so on. And so I did that in 19, circa 1971. It was topped with a red trouble light. And uh, in fact, it exists to this day at our cottage, and the bulb has not yet burned out. <laughs> Which cool. is more than I can say for many lighthouses in Canada. Very true. <laughs> wow. Well, you knew what you were doing even then. Maybe uh, this is probably something that's a little hard to sum up in just a, a couple of words here, but uh, what led you to become a lighthouse keeper? 
And I should mention, well, in the introduction, I think we said this, but you uh, did become a lighthouse keeper in your early 20s, and we'll talk about that. So it's a lifelong interest, obviously, as I've, I've kind of just set the stage for it. And I believe my interest in lighthouses began in utero when my mother climbed <laughs> um, the steps of Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, maybe a tenuous connection, but uh, it certainly, certainly there was a seed planted uh, and my interest came to, not to fruition, but started to show itself about the age of 16 when I went to what was then known as Canada Manpower, an employment center in Halifax. And I went in and I said, I would like to find a job as a lighthouse keeper. And the, uh, the gal there said, no, there are no light keepers anymore, which was half true. They were starting to automate and de-staff Canadian lighthouses starting in the early 70s, but there were still very many lighthouses to staff. But they, most of the positions were part-time positions. So flash forward to the age of 23, 24, and my friend Ian Duff, Scottish lightkeeper. Mm-hmm. I've met, met him. Yes, you have indeed. You've been to Scotland, and I was living in Scotland and met him there. To make a long story short, he and some fellow lightkeepers had won a TV quiz show in Britain called Busman's Holiday, which had brought them to Canada to visit, well, the busman visits bus stations and buses, the lightkeepers visit lighthouses. And we toured Cross Island Lighthouse on the south shore of Nova Scotia. I got to meet the keepers there, made a lovely visit. And uh, shortly after that visit, which was in November or late 1988, I learned of the need for a relief keeper for three weeks. And George Locke, the head lightkeeper, recommended my name to the Coast Guard base in Dartmouth, which was uh, the base that oversaw the lighthouses in that district. And lo and behold, in February of 1989, I was winging my way in a helicopter, an MBB-105 Bokau helicopter, Messerschmitt, to land on Cross Island. And I thought, three weeks as a lightkeeper, I have fulfilled my lifelong dream. I will be happy. I will never have to work as a lightkeeper again. And three weeks led to nine years on 11 lighthouses in three provinces on both coasts of Canada. Right. So there's the Reader's Digest version anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Now, in your book, Vanishing Lights, you you talked uh, quite a bit about Cross Island uh, in the book. You described the island as teeming with all kinds of wildlife. Uh, Also, you described sort of a ghost town on the island. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the, the experience uh, at Cross Island? Well, I think, I think the thing that, Jeremy, that really amazed me is I showed up in February, and of course the weather, I couldn't get out the first day I was supposed to go there because of, of bad weather. So they delayed it by a day or two. And when I landed there, there was a cessation in the snow. The helicopter left, and then the wind, a nor'easter, blew up. And it was like being at the, in the Arctic with the swirling snow, and the, except there are no foghorns in the Arctic. And that was the next thing. The foghorn <laughs> came on this raspy blast, twice, twice a minute blast. And what really amazed me, other than the, the wind and the exposed southern point where this lighthouse was located and still is, was that on the eastern side of the island with the northeast wind, the surf would pile in. And you've seen spume and spray on the shore and, and foam. The foam reached the point where it was 8 to 10 feet thick. And you could actually drive through these inlets or cuts in the eastern shore of this island in a tractor and be entirely covered in foam. Uh-huh. I'd never seen so much foam. So it was just a testament to the... the uh, exposure of that island and how the surf was just pounding that shore. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just amazed me. Wildlife, seabirds, of course, in the summertime, human wildlife in the summertime, because the ghost settlement came alive 
in the summertime with summer boaters and parties, some of which I partook in. Um, but it was just a, it was a really neat experience because there had been a permanent settlement on the island till the 1920s, right. and vestiges of that um, were still in evidence. And people came and inhabited former homes and, and current cottages. So you got a real sense of the community of the place and how important the lighthouse was to that community. Right. Uh, you kept journals when you were on Cross Island. Actually, did. Uh, did you keep journals for the whole time you were light keeping? I did. I have seven hundred pages of journals at home <laughs> in, in six volumes. So, when I, are you going to publish all that? Uh, probably after I die. <laughs> okay, I'll come back and do that, or I'll have someone do that for me. I, Please I, it do. W- it would be nice to draw from them. Yeah, because those yeah. were the raw observations of every station I worked on. I absolutely love them. I really love your observations uh, of the weather, for one thing. I mean, there's so many uh, vivid uh, observations. Uh, if you could, I'd, I'd love, you, uh, love it if you could do me a favor and read a paragraph I really like in Vanishing Lights describing the summer weather on Cross Island. Uh, I'm talking about one on page 53, and you've got the, the book right there. If you could read that passage, I would, I would absolutely. Really like that. And as I read these words, I can actually, I can almost smell the air there, and I can see what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. The lighthouse road is dry and dusty. Grasshoppers leave little explosions of gray in the shale as they jump. Although the heat of the day lingers throughout the afternoon on the northern end of the island, the air gets cooler as you get closer to the light station on the southern point. As you climb the final hills before reaching the open fields around the lighthouse, the wind begins to ruffle your hair. I had hair back then. And then, unbelievably, It is cold and windy, and the horn starts to blow. Through the heat of the day, a bank of fog has been lurking on the horizon, waiting to move in. And when it comes, it it does so with amazing speed. Almost immediately, the mood of the island changes. With the wisps of wet fog swirling in the light, the whole world reduces to the light station. Anything outside the lighthouse compound basically does not exist. When the fog lifts, maybe a few hours later, maybe a few weeks later, a larger world of trees, fields, water, distant islands, and the mainland once again becomes reality. Not bad for a (laughs) 24-year-old. I think it's fantastic. (laughs) I hear that, and I'm I'm there, you know. That is is so great. And by the way, I had hair then, too, so don't don't feel that bad. We're in the same club. (laughs) Don't feel bad about that. So you were at Cross Island right near the end before it was uh, de-staffed? I was the last person to spend a night okay. on the island, that's, on the light station, after 159 years of staffed history there. That's about as close to the end as you can get. Pretty well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want to say anything more about that, what that was like being there uh, at the end like that? I think I felt that it was a pretty important time to be there. George Locke, the principal keeper, had left a little bit earlier. They had come that day to sling all of his belongings off of the helicopter. Thanks to a meddling assistant, relief assistant lightkeeper, um, the media had shown up. Coast Guard didn't want media, but I kind of leaked the story to um, the local newspaper and CBC got wind of it. So I wasn't very popular with the powers that be, but I think it was very important to have that that occasion remembered after all that those years of more than a century of and a half of service to mariners and a way of life for George and all the keepers who came before him. So right. I was glad I'd, I'd gone against authority and done that. Mm-hmm. And it was very special for me to be at, at, as my as my you know first experience as a lightkeeper and my first light station to be the last person to spend a night at that station. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I'm glad you did that too. So your next stop was Seal Island, yes, Yarmouth, yes. 
And you uh, had some history with Seal Island. You had childhood associations with Yeah, them. my dad is a bird watcher. Uh, he's still living. And uh, he and four other or five other bird watchers actually bought a house on the island for a handshake and a few hundred bucks like you could do back in the day to use as a bird watching base. So I first went there when I was somewhere between uh, six and seven years old. Actually, I just came back from there three days ago. Um, because I still maintain that house now that I'm the sort of the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that got that led me to getting to know people on the island. There had been a light station established on the island in 1830, 1831. And uh, I found out there was a need for an assistant lightkeeper. And lo and behold, I had an interview and I was on my way in the fall of 1989 to spend six shifts as an assistant lightkeeper on Seal Island. I also pretty well helped close that one out. So I, I was a bit of a it seems to me a bad luck charm because every lighthouse I worked on ended up being de-staffed and I got moved on to the next one. But that's a bit of a joke because really I was like keeping at the end of the era of staff lighthouses in Eastern Canada, especially in the Maritimes. And so it was just natural that they were closing lights and I kept moving on. Uh, you went there in 89. Uh, Seal Island is a pretty large island. 1,000 acres. 1,000 acres. 18 miles offshore. Yeah, it's just west of Clark's Harbor on Cape Sable Island, not to be confused with Sable Island, right? Which is in the southwest or southwest uh, mm-hmm. corner of Nova Scotia. I like your descriptions in Vanishing Lights of uh, the light station as being very busy and noisy. Well, and the funny thing about Seal Island was that we had uh, two sets of generators. So we had our domestic generators, which were put in a building which was not designed to be soundproof. Uh, because it was a garage previously. And then we had three sets of generators that ran all the navigational equipment down on the shore. So you had this huge, roaring, uh, growling, vibrating mass of generators in this shed up by the lighthouse. And then you had these droning little generators down below uh, to keep the fog detector and the foghorn and the main light going. So it was an extremely noisy place, but it also gave it a, a feeling of vitality. Until 1987, there were families living on the island year-round, and then it became a rotational station. So when I was there, we were doing 28-day shifts. Mm-hmm. and But within a year, uh, they had uh, the Coast Guard had come and installed automation equipment and de-staffed the lighthouse in October of 19, uh, 1990. Yeah, so again, I was the bad luck charm. <laughs> Feel like a lighthouse killer? Yeah, a bit of a lighthouse Jonah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So next we had Machaya Seal Island. Machaya Seal Island, the contested island, the Seabird Republic, located between the great state of Maine and the great province of New Brunswick, Canada, uh, 1990, flew from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, across to Machaya Seal Island, and I remember that first sight of that little crescent of islands, not really fully understanding just what seabirds mean to that island and how much they rule what happens out there, the puffins and the terns and the yes. razorbill ox and so on, but a lovely piece of turf and mowed lawn and this beautiful large DCB 36 lens flashing every three seconds from the tower. And that was on 24 seven. So I remember descending in the helicopter, seeing that revolving eye, just the burst of brilliance of the light and landing on this immaculately maintained station with the houses painted up and the lawns mode and the maple leaf snapping in the breeze and occasionally a stars and stripes with American visitors coming (laughs) out. Uh, But it was again, a very dynamic place and the noise there came from the birds, yes. the puffins, the ox, the, the, the Arctic terns, and it was overwhelming. Yes. It was cacophonous. Yes. And the other noise came from the foghorn. There were two 1,000-watt emitters, and I have to say this straight off the bat because I'd never come across this situation before, one pointing to the west, one pointing to the east. The house was to the east. 
So when the horn blew, it blew directly at the keeper's house. And the decibel level was somewhere in the range of 110 decibels in the living room of the house when the horn blew. And it was many years after that they moved the horn, after they realized that uh, occupational health and safety didn't have a a great view of that amount of noise level in the house. So again, Mm -hmm. uh, but that was just an occupational hazard of of light keeping at the time. We didn't think much about it. Uh, you touched a little bit on the dispute between the U.S. and Canada over the the ownership of the, the who which the is ongoing, was. right? Uh, right, it is still ongoing. I, uh, the uh, of course the Norton family had a played a has played a big role in that. Barna and John Norton, yes, indeed. I I never met Barna Norton, but I did speak with him on the phone. I did uh, meet John Norton actually when uh, he took me on his boat to photograph some of the the area lighthouses one time. They have both passed away, correct? Since, since then uh but the the dispute still goes on but who with them both gone who, who is leading the the charge for the the uh the united states on that? i don't know if, the, if there's a charge being led but it's just simmering on the diplomatic back burner i think and it's interesting to note that the canadian coast guard has recently established uh, a 13 mile light on north rock which is just off the north tip of machia seal island why we need a 13 mile light next to an 18 to 20 mile light on a major staff light station uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's for sovereignty purposes and it's interesting to note that the canadian coast guard lighthouse keepers on machia seal island who work 28 day shifts mm-hmm. until 1987 two families live there year round they are paid by Canada's Department of Foreign Affairs. They are not mm-hmm. paid by the Coast Guard. So this is a sovereignty issue, and that's why my country has maintained lightkeepers on that island uh, past the due date of many staff lighthouses. Well, there are none left in the Maritimes. That is the last one. Right. And that is the only reason, Jeremy, as you well know, that that station is still staffed. No matter what side you come in on, pro-American, pro-Canadian, don't care, gray zone, doesn't matter, no matter what side you take, having lightkeepers there and having Canadian Wildlife Service people there has been a great boon to the island because it protects the breeding seabird colonies mm-hmm. and the seabirds that are, are there seasonally. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to have the lightkeepers there. Barna Norton often admitted that even though he said it was his island and raised the stars, old glory, whenever he could, admitted that the keepers were great there. Andrew Patterson has said the same thing. And I think even John, gruff as he was, I think he agreed that it was good to have mm-hmm. a keepers there, whether they be Canadian or American. But that's one station we'll never see de-staffed. I'm, I'm not, a, not in our lifetimes. Did you get along well with the birds? Yes, yes, because we kept our distance from the birds, but turns were problematic because turns will dive bomb you. And we actually had hard hats with flags on them because they would actually draw blood. Yeah, it happened to me that I did one of Vandy Patterson's uh, tours from Cutler, Maine there. And while we were there, a woman in the woman in the group got dive bombed and got uh, she drew got blood. Stabbed. It drew mm-hmm. blood, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and it, I mean, she was almost laughing it off, but it was bleeding profusely. But a scalp wound will bleed a lot. So absolutely, was, it's quite vascular. So I, I know yeah. keepers. I I was not un, unfortunate enough to have that happen to me, but it happened to. Many light keepers, and that's why we they came up with the idea of the hard hats with the flags. Mm-hmm. Because they would dive bomb and hit a hard hat too, but at least the flag would let them, you know, they would avoid the flag. So occupational uh, hazard on Machia Seal Island. Yeah. I also spent Christmas there one year, which was a- an amazing experience. The, the noise yes. of the birds was replaced with the noise of the storms and the wind and the incessant incessant blowing of the foghorn on days where you had sea smoke or vapor, as they call it, uh, up that way. 
yeah. and uh, and snowstorms and three foot snowdrifts that you had to shovel your way out of the basement of the house. And as soon as you shoveled it out, it would blow back in again because the wind was blowing northeast 40, 50, 60. Or the beautiful calm nights in the winter or the summer even when you would just be settling down on the couch for a long winter or summer's nap and reading a book and the next thing that bloody horn would come on again mm-hmm. and in would go the earplugs and off you'd go to bed. Yeah. You talk about the Christmas. You talk about Christmas on uh, the island in Vanishing Lights, and yes, charms of Christmas. Uh, you it, you it, talked about being sad at first, but then having a, actually a pretty great time. It was a pretty poignant memory because I remember being there with uh, Jim Smith, Jim or Reg Smith, as he was known. And I remember his wife sending him greetings on CJLS, the radio station in Yarmouth, to Reg Smith out on on Machias Seal Island. I remember tuning into BBC BBC Radio on my shortwave radio and listening to the Festival of Carols and Lessons from the College of uh, Chapel of uh, King's College in Cambridge. And I had a string of lights around my bedroom bedroom windows and a nice big turkey dinner just two two fellows on this tiny island between uh, the u.s and canada so it's a pretty pretty poignant memory yeah chris i i love your journal entry in vanishing lights uh describing the foghorn on which i seal island we've touched on the foghorn yes and its location on the uh with relation to the keeper's house when the foghorn is on the noise level around here is horrific it's tolerable in my east-facing bedroom, but almost painful anywhere in the living room and western bedrooms. A couple of years ago, someone from the Coast Guard brought a decibel meter to the island to measure the sound of the fog signal in the dwelling. In the living room, it recorded an impressive and painful level of 97 decibels. I find that if I sit in the easy chair by the front window, my right ear begins to ring <laughs> within an hour. The windows vibrate with each blast, adding to the nearly tenable sensation in my ears. The sound of a foghorn so close day by day is aggravating, to say nothing of the annoyance it causes while we chat or watch TV. Two three-second blasts every minute is extremely effective in obliterating all conversations, both on the TV and in the room. And of course, as many light keepers did for many years, you kind of instinctually knew when the horn was going to blast, so you would stop your conversation for those three seconds, talk for three seconds, stop for three seconds, and then you had 51 seconds to catch up on what you were talking about. 97 decibels is louder than a motorcycle, by the way. I don't know what kind of a motorcycle we're talking about, but I just I just Googled 97 decibels, and a, a motorcycle <laughs> says 90 decibels of power more. It says 96 decibels, so... Well, I think I, I probably a Harley, you know. Uh, it's got to be a Harley. Yeah, yeah. but it was it, Harley it was bouncing loud. off brick buildings or something. And, and exactly, reverberating. <laughs> and the thing was, the windows actually, mm-hmm. and this is twice a minute for three seconds at a time, day in, day out. Sometimes for a total of what well, Machias would see up to 2,600 hours of thick weather a year. When you consider there's what, 7,000 hours in a year, give or take, 2,600 hours is a lot of horn time. Mm-hmm. A lot of horn time. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. Now your next uh, light station was Gannett Rock. Gannett, I could see from Machias to the east of Machias, and it was one that I always wanted to get to because mm-hmm. it was a rock station. It sure is. And I don't mean rock and roll. <laughs> well, it did rock and roll. Yeah, it you could. know something about rock stations, but that was yeah. a true rock station. or so you As close as we get in, in Canada, pretty well, to right. a rock station. Established in 1831. And uh, basically barnacled onto the rock, if you can use that as a verb, uh, a granite-based tower 
wooden tower, much of which still remains today, although it's abandoned. You've seen it. It's a sad sight. Yes. With a concrete house basically uh, stuck to the side of it and a large bunker, which was previously a fog alarm building. You could walk around the whole thing on the deck in 45 seconds, maybe. There was a small wharf and uh, a helicopter pad, and that was it. And you were there for 28 days at a time, although keepers lived there year-round until the 1950s. One family upstairs, one family downstairs. Raised kids by friend Kay Ingersoll, who just passed away this uh, this year at the age of 90. Learned to ride a bicycle on Gannett Rock. So it's the second oldest wooden lighthouse in Canada. Next to Head Harbor. Yes, That's which right. I was in today, as a matter of and fact, on Campbell Island. Yeah. Gorgeous colonial construction, huge uh-huh. uh, hand-hewn beams. Um, and this one was interesting because the original Gannett Rock Lighthouse, which was a little bit shorter, it was heightened to circa 1906. The keepers and their families lived in the tower. Uh-huh. So there were still the remnants of plaster on the walls and where windows had been. So you really felt the age of the tower when you were walking up through the levels to the lantern. In Vanishing Lights, you called Gannett Rock a place out of time. That's a great description right there. Well, I still remember writing in my journal how I felt about the day I arrived there because it felt like, almost I felt like I was in a ship because you had the generators going, you had the smell of diesel, you had the smell of cooking, you had the smell of cigarettes because people were smoking at that time, and they all mingled to produce a really strong olfactory experience. Then you've got the sound of the surf, then you've got the foghorn kicking in, you've got the wind... You've got the waves, and you've got this big lens, big DCB-36 turning up top. And at night, all you can see is these big arms of light going every, I think it was every six seconds or seven and a half. I forget the, the characteristic. Uh, it was um, it was just an, almost an overwhelming experience. And yeah. to this day, I mean, I've got it tattooed on my arm. It was my, my favorite lighthouse, and I would go back there to be a light keeper in a flash, no pun intended. I had the memorable experience of being with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many years ago was that now? A few years ago now. Gosh, it was. I think it was 2015. Yeah, I was going to so say four, four years or five ago. Five years ago, yeah. yeah. Being with you on one of the uh, Bar Harbor Whale Watch uh, so-called Grand Slam cruises, which is why we're here right now. We're doing that Indeed. tomorrow, but we're not going to see Gannett Rock tomorrow. Unfortunately, no. Yeah, which it's is a disappointment. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but we did go near it uh, in 2015. Uh, and that was your first time seeing it in some years at that point. Since right? 1993, so it had been 22 or so years since yeah. I'd seen it. So it's kind of a bittersweet experience at that point. Yeah, it's funny. I've seen pictures of Gannett taken showing the deterioration and the, the fact that the house has been stripped inside and nothing is left. They had to strip it because there was no heat after we left in 1996. I hadn't seen it since 93, but it's funny. Even though it was it was bittersweet and quite emotional to see it. When I think of Gannett now, my mind still goes back to the time I was there. And that's what I see. I see it painted up inside. I see that big DCB 36. I hear the horn. I see the oil stove in the kitchen. I see the television in the living room going and the lighthouse radio and our weather reporting equipment and those beautiful stairs and the, the curved balustrades going up into the top of the light. And I, 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 I feel myself with my back against the walls of the tower in a 60-knot gale, feeling the tower give with the wind and move, and which is exactly what it was designed to do. Because it was it, even though it had to be cabled down to hold it down with on each corner, it, it was built to give. It was built to give, and that's how it survived there since 1831, and still survives even though now it's essentially derelict. It'll, it'll, it might outlast me yet. It's hard mm-hmm. to say. It's hard to say. But it won't outlast government neglect, unfortunately, though. Right, yeah. right. 
to me, just the idea of visiting there, you know, for a, on a day trip would be just an unbelievable experience. But to spend several months there as you did is just... Well, it was two years ago today that I was back to Gannett Rock, and we we had yeah. all plans of landing on the island. Yeah, and that would have been the first time I would have set foot there since '93. And I, I left a t- I left a time capsule there underneath the lighthouse deck, and I wanted to see if it was still there. Unfortunately, there was too much swell, and we couldn't safely land. So I'm going back next month, and I hope to be able to land. Mm-hmm. And, but that, you know what? To be honest with you, if I don't, it won't kill me because it's going to be heartbreaking to see the mess it's in. Here's a tough question for you. Would you like to comment on the state of lighthouse preservation in Canada? Or let's say, let's limit it to Atlantic Canada today. How successful has lighthouse preservation in Atlantic Canada been to this point, would you say? Overall, not successful, but there are notable exceptions which make the whole story better. So by averages, great. (laughs) Good. Good. But not by -by case-by-case basis. Yeah. Nova Scotia had the highest number of staff lighthouses. It had big stations. It had well-maintained stations. And they were basically laid waste to after destaffing. There was um, almost an active... Well, it was demolition by neglect, so it wasn't really active, but it didn't take long for those stations to to fall into disrepair. And there was no effort made, no avenue provided for groups early on. The bulk of the destaffing was between, we'll say, the mid-1970s and 1989. There was no avenue for local groups to take over lighthouses until the end of that period. And by then, most of them were not worth saving. It was too much work to save them. Uh, but fortunately, there are some key sites such as Cape Forshu in Yarmouth and Port Beckerton on the east uh, eastern shore and many other smaller lights that have been saved. But, the, but these are small lights you can drive to. These big stations with big towers and lots of infrastructure, lots of buildings, unfortunately, they, they're gone. And unlike Maine, unlike uh, New Hampshire, unlike Rhode Island, uh, many other states uh, and the west coast of, of the United States, uh, we haven't saved many of these remote sites you folks have. I, I think part of it is due to apathy. Part of it is due to um, an entrepreneurial attitude, which exists in, in perhaps in, a greater no- in greater numbers in the United States. But we have a, a slightly larger country landmass-wise than you folks and a tenth of your population. So we don't have the people and the money to save these remote stations. Right. And you have Not almost as many lighthouses. Similar number, actually. We do. Yeah, that's right. So it's um, it's very difficult for us to save every lighthouse. Having said that, and we won't talk in detail about the rest of the country, Quebec has done an amazing job saving beautiful big light stations, including lighthouses that still have diaphone foghorns, not operating, but in place with all their equipment. Uh, Fresnel lenses still in use, some which even get wound by hand and are still operating in that way during the daytime, wound by the students who staff these sites. Uh, Ontario has, has done a great job with some of their lights. And of course, British Columbia, 27 of their lighthouses are still staffed by resident keepers. And there are 21 in Newfoundland still staffed. So they're maintained extremely well. But um, to wrap up that question, there are some great success stories, but the not the failures, but the lack of successes outweigh the successes. Mm-hmm. But we have to concentrate on what has been saved. Yeah, That's the positive part. How optimistic would you say you are at this point about the future of uh, lighthouse preservation? I think the lighthouses which have been saved 
are, are going to thrive and prosper, most of them. Uh, but here's an example. There's a there's Ile Rouge, Red Island, in, in the confluence of the Saguenay and the St. Lawrence River, mm-hmm. which had been taken over by a group, and it's now going to have all of its buildings demolished except for the beautiful 1840-ish stone tower. Gorgeous, gorgeous French-style stone tower. That'll be left. Everything else will go. So we're still losing. We're yeah. still losing. However, nearby, Prince Chaux, Autre Prince, is has been restored, and it's a pillar light with no land under it, except the land that's on the bottom of the seabed. And that's been restored. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, a, it's a juxtaposition of places that were saved and now aren't and places that are being saved. So that's kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, but I think we do have hope. But we, we have lost the lion's share of the important stations. The lion's share are gone. Mm. exist only in memory and archival photographs and family photographs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Why should people care about these places? People should care on a number of levels because uh, our country, our respective countries were built uh, on safe na- navigation. It was extremely important. Lighthouses such as Sambro at the entrance to Halifax Harbor in Nova Scotia guided immigrant ships into Halifax, into the New World, from whence they went to the States and to Toronto and to Vancouver and wherever else in the rest of the country. So they've, they've, they've kept our mariners safe. They've guided new people to our countries. They're part of the, the very bedrock and foundation of our countries because in the, in the sense that, I mean, your, your, your first lighthouse, of course, predates your union as, a, as a, your independence, and, and so does ours, uh, Lewisburg, 1733-34. But they really laid the foundation for the, the settlement and the growth and development of our countries. And they're just neat places to see. They're gorgeous. It doesn't matter why you enjoy a lighthouse. If you like the scenery, if your father was a lightkeeper, if your cousin was a lightkeeper, if you just like the place, if, if something special happened, if you got married at a lighthouse, if your husband proposed to you or vice versa, they're special places on many levels. And as such, they're iconic. I know that's an overused word, but they've got, they've got to be saved as many as we can. They remind us of what we are, where we came from, and who we are now. Thank you so much, Chris Mills. Thank you, Can't Jeremy. Say any better than that. It's been a pleasure. Thank <laughs> you so much. It. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Lighthearted. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking with Chris Mills. Until next time, keep a good light. <laughs>